the first solo podcast in a long time. A lot of my solo endeavors have been on hold. I don't know exactly why. I guess I'm uh, fairly busy with a relatively new job, but I've I've completely halted the Substack, not really Billy.substack.com, and mostly I've just been recording pods with with guests, like one or two a month. But um, recording a solo one here, you know, sometimes I'm sort of stewing on a topic or thinking about a topic, and I don't know exactly how I feel about it, but actually recording the podcast and, and trying to get my thoughts out in sort of a audio essay form is really helpful. So I'll, I'll do that today, and it'll be a little circuitous, um, but hopefully it'll uh, be interesting to some of you. In terms of these solo endeavors, I, I need to make more money. So I have two harebrained ideas uh, that I'm interested in running by people. The first is I might take a bunch of essays from the Substack uh, into a book, uh, I think I have like eight or nine essays that are all in some sense about COVID and the experience of, of how things changed under COVID. I, I don't know that we're necessarily out of all those changes, but I think I'm, the majority of what I would want to say about that is already written. So maybe I will release that in a book form. Maybe I'll ask my friend Billy or pay him, Billy who's been on the pod, to do some art for this essay collection and maybe I'll write a new intro essay and a new conclusion and you know just self-publish on amazon or whatever try to get some art try to make it look nice and uh you know the 10 people or whatever i can harangue into buying that will do so and i can make a uh, 100 bucks or whatever um but i think back when i was doing the Substack more regularly people did say that um they liked the the covid related essays the most so maybe that's a a sensible project. My other much more harebrained scheme is uh, I want to get my private investigator license. You know, right when I got back to the United States, like 11 or 12 years ago now from a, a few years living abroad, one of the first jobs I had was with a business intelligence firm and, um, you know, what whatever the fuck a business intelligence firm is. Basically, it's like law firms hire you to do both open source and some real world investigations. So like, type of stuff I got to do is like there was some case where uh, someone was suing someone else. The guy said he had no money, uh, so they needed me to go take pictures of properties uh, to make sure no one was actually living there and they were boarded up and stuff because the guy was basically saying like, you know, these properties are run down. I could sell them, but they aren't worth anything. So it just had to go confirm that uh, they were in fact run down and shitty. Um, and I don't know. I liked that. I think that one of the things that's frustrating about an office or email job, one of the many things is, but I think I'm actually pretty perceptive about like knowing when people are bullshitting or lying, but like it's not even useful in my job. Like in my job, people are just lying and bullshitting 100% of the time, but there's no, because the whole thing is bullshit, there's no real value in like calling people out. But I don't know. I feel like if I could, uh, I'm sure that I could get the PA license, PI license, and then just you know, for a long time, no one would hire me to investigate anything. But like I said, I have sort of this, I have a weird combination of research background where I've done some of this, uh, you know, very light real world investigation. And also I'm pretty good at like digital records and open source stuff. So I don't know, maybe I could uh, be a little entrepreneurial and try to get some uh, cases. It looks pretty easy in Virginia to get your PI license. So I figure why not do it? Maybe I'll Maybe I'll start a cheeky uh, GoFundMe or Give, Send, Go, whatever the uncancelable one is, uh, to try and fund my my side hustle as a PI. But, um, yeah, and, you know, in all the PI movies, there's like, a, there's like a tragic woman who comes in, and uh, I guess it's called the femme fatale, but, you know, there's some evil woman that the guy falls in love with, and uh, that plays into the case. And I fall in love with evil women all the time even without uh being a private investigator so why not <laughs> why not have them overlap more but okay that's the sort of um i guess that's the the preamble the administrative stuff what do i want to talk about today how to introduce it well you know there are some people who say there's this whole thing of horseshoe theory right which is the idea that uh at least in certain ways the far left and the far right 
end up agreeing on certain things because they're, you know, the, I guess in this metaphor, the political spectrum is like a circle and you can move so far in one direction that you end up at the other. I guess maybe one example of this would be like Ted Kaczynski or something, you know, he had like ecological concerns, um, and environmental concerns and was anti-technology, but like, you know, if you read his manifesto, if you hear what he talked about, it's difficult to place him on the right or left. He sort of has the anti-modern stuff maybe seems more right-wing, but the, the, uh, the worries about the environment and sort of human stewardship of the environment, maybe that seems more left-wing. So there's some sort of convergence that can go on with some of these issues. But a slightly different interpretation of the political spectrum is that far-right and far-left people uh, accept each other's premises in a way that distinguishes them both from liberals, um, but that they don't agree on, you know, what's to be done. So, like, an example of this would be, like, liberals think that institutions can be race-neutral, or at least that there is value in having institutions aspire to be race-neutral, you know, equal under the law, no discrimination, etc., etc., the, the far left would say, well, in a majority white country um, with a history of racism, it's actually impossible that your institutions are ever going to not be racist and you're not even going to be able to detect the exact ways in which they're racist because it's such a part of uh, the atmosphere of everyday life and all institutional calculations that you have to just sort of build in advantages for minorities. And then I think the right wing, maybe the identitarian right wing, comes in and agrees with the premise but totally disagrees with with how things proceed. Like they would say, yes, race neutrality, true neutrality is impossible. The state and institutions have to show a preference uh, for, you know, between groups. They have to have a preference. But what's sort of perverse in America is that you have majority-run institutions or traditionally majority-run institutions showing deference to minority populations, and they shouldn't do this. They should show deference to the majority because that's sort of how you build social cohesion and identity for a society. And so I think that I don't, um, besides thinking it's interesting that sometimes the assumptions shared by the far right and the far left are uh, shared, and I guess they can be summed up as skepticism of liberalism's claims and, and skeptical of, you know, how neutral or, let's say, procedurally based any political system can really be or remain for any significant period of time. Um, and they both sort of insist that maybe a preference for one population or another should be written in. Um, do I agree with either of them? I don't really know. I, I think I agree at least insofar as I think it is true that liberalism has never actually shown the capacity to reach true neutrality, though I think the most intelligent defenders of liberalism, again, would concede this and just say, well, your institutional performance gets better when you set neutrality as the goal and the standard. And even if you never reach it, uh, the outcomes in pursuit of neutrality are better than outcomes would be uh, when you openly express a preference for certain populations over another. Because once you do that, you're just sort of circling the drain. Like the, the corruption of um, uh, the corruption is just endless. And, you know, that's that's an interesting point. It's a plausible point. I think it's it's strange, you know, if you go to some of these countries, like if you, if you, I had the opportunity to live in China and I lived in Syria for a little bit. And in both cases, I mean, they're very different, but let's say in China, you know, there's a Han majority. And to some extent in culture and politics, there's like Han chauvinism, you know, there's a, and the communists have handled this different ways at different points. You know, at certain times they try to say like, no, communism is our real identity and like we have regard for these different minorities at other times they're really and this maybe is sort of what's happening with the Uyghurs now they're really trying to get certain minorities to behave more like the Han um, and it's weird you know some minority groups uh, have really like taken or I think you could say certain minority groups in 
China have succeeded in assimilating into broader Han identity, and in another few generations, they might be, like, virtually indistinguishable, because the state has also taken measures like, you know, it's weird, in China they do have laws like protecting local languages, protecting local customs, but there also is this drift, and in fact, I think for a long time, minority communities were not subject to the one-child rule. So that's sort of, like, weird and interesting, that in a place like China where there is this Han majority, in many cases there's, like, an expressed preference for the Han identity, but then they still do have some legal arrangements, um, you know, to protect minorities, at least on paper. Um, I'm sure different people would tell you how it played out. And in Syria, it's a totally different situation. You have a minority regime uh, that's Alawite and a majority Sunni population. And what's interesting about that example, I mean, I think Syria is really unique in a lot of ways, but what's interesting about that is that there really are just like a few families that have always been the powerful Alawites, and most Alawites in Syria are poor, and like a lot of important government positions are held by well-to-do Sunnis that are sort of mobbed up with the Alawites. And I think actually, you know, before the Civil War, which has now been going on for over 10 years, the regime would often take opportunities to uh, punish or not favor other Alawites, seemingly to try and get credibility from the broader public. You know, like they'd, like most Alawites are poor, Alawites uh, do a lot of like military service. They get the short end of the stick in a lot of different ways, and it's it's strange because it seems like it is a conspicuous decision on the part of the regime to not help certain Alawites because they don't they don't want to be viewed as a minority supremacist regime, but they kind of didn't achieve anything. I mean, I think at least as an outside observer, you would say like most Alawites uh, didn't have great lives in Syria, didn't receive incredible preferential treatment from the regime. But then when the war started, the enmity between Sunnis and Alawites was still plenty hot uh, and was certainly implicated in the conflict. So I just bring up these examples because they're sort of weird and idiosyncratic, and neither one is a straightforward example of saying, okay, this regime has a preference for its own kind in the population. Like, there's always more going on than that, which is sort of interesting. Um, and I don't know what it implies about the original argument, besides that there is not, like, a one-size-fits-all, oh, things work out better when you, you know show dramatic preference for the in-group or vice versa. I can't think of many places. I mean, maybe one of the most dramatic examples, and unfortunately I don't know that much about it, is like you could see that the Modi government in India has really doubled down on being like being Indian means being Hindu, and we're going to uh, punish Muslims and some other minority groups, and we're going to really make our government all about reinforcing the connection between Indian and Hindu identity, and it seems like they've had some success with that, at least politically. I mean, it causes some social problems that we're, we're unsure how they'll be resolved, but maybe that's an example of uh, a government showing fairly straightforward in preference, and we sort of see how that's working out or not working. Um, I think from Modi's perspective, you can say it's been successful. You know, his, the BJP seems willing to deal with the sort of social tumult that comes out of that, um, and maybe even like it because you know they can, they have like a straightforward other that they can always sort of confront and uh, energize their base by doing so. So it's, you know, that's that's playing out in sort of a, a classic and more easy to understand dynamic. But I'm sure if I had, you know, someone who knew more granular level about India on, they could tell me about all the interesting idiosyncratic things that happen, you know, maybe certain minority groups that really like the BJP. Um, I think there was a time where Indian Christians, like, liked the BJP because they liked sort of uh, antagonism between the government and Muslims, but I think that's changed. I think there's been, like, uh, some number of, of Hindu anti-Christian incidents and that this has soured that relationship. But that, again, that's just based on, like, news headlines, I'm sure I could get a more interesting read. Um, but yeah, what's the what's the point of all this? I don't, like I said, I'm not going to take a side in that sort of identity argument. Do you need the 
regime, the government to take, uh, to have a community that it views as on side and a community that it views with suspicion. I don't really have a take on that. I, I would just say descriptively that I think either liberalism's capacity to be a neutral arbiter is breaking down or just the populace's willingness to view the claims to neutrality of liberal institutions with any, uh, you know, to give that neutrality any credibility, that is breaking down. And so it almost, I guess this is just me being like political science brained, but it, in some ways it's less important to me uh, like what system I would endorse because uh, I'm not making the rules. It's more like for a period of time our system of government seemed capable of convincing most people it was fair. And there are notable exceptions, maybe in certain minority communities, you never would have gotten a majority uh, to sign on to that proposition. But at the very least, the country seemed stable. And one of the reasons it was stable is that most people believed there was something like equality under the law. And I think that it is interesting as an observation to say less and less people believe that. Does that mean that uh, the government must then express a preference between communities one way or another? I don't know. But this whole long intro was just, the point of this was I wanted to get around to the fact that I think there are aspects of the left-wing view of history uh, that I sign on to more than uh, the traditional American like liberal view of history. And I want to talk specifically about um, the Revolutionary War and the long campaigns against Indian populations because, and go with me on another digression here for a moment. You know, uh, through jobs I used to have, I had opportunities to speak with a lot of uh, Syrian groups involved in the Civil War there, and I also got to go to Libya um, where I spoke to some of the groups involved in uh, the uprising against Gaddafi. And in both these positions, basically, I was part of a group that was, like, talking to these people to sort of assess their, I don't know, well, assess their vision for politics or something. You know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, like, an expert on such groups. It's just an interesting situation to, to be able to talk to such people. And I think that one dynamic that I couldn't put my finger on at the time but in retrospect seems more and more clear, is like at a lot of these meetings between Western diplomats and rebel groups, um, there's this bizarre dynamic where like, you know, like say in Syria, like I can remember meeting at the, I don't, I don't know if there was a Canadian mission in Gaziantep, but I, I got to sit in on a meeting between some Canadian diplomats and some free Syrian army uh, rebels, and I wasn't really participating. I was just like taking notes and uh, observing. And I knew that uh, the place where the the rebel guys had driven across the border, like on the other side of the border right now, uh, there was a lot of fighting. So they had sort of like left the front uh, at a critical time, and at a time where, you know, people they're friends with, people they're fighting with, might be you know dying or at least taking fire taking bombardment while they're uh, over here taking this meeting, which which also seemed odd because it's like, why leave the front to talk to fucking Canadians? But maybe, maybe from their perspective, it's like the Canadians are sort of a window into the American attitude because the Canadians are, you know, just like a subsidiary of, of U.S. foreign policy. But I, I don't know how they viewed it. But in any event, um, the bizarre dynamic was just that um, the Western diplomats are always like, they have a lot of questions about the group's interactions with terrorist groups, uh, about their, you know, positions on women, on gay people. It's always like this ideological, um, gauntlet that they want to run them through. And, you know, the, the guys on the Syrian side, who knows what they actually believe on the Libyan side, they have some knowledge of what the expectation of potential Western patrons are. And so to some extent they're able, I mean, I think clearly they're not as good as the Ukrainians are now at hitting sort of like the symbols and uh, 
uh, aesthetics of what the West wants to see from liberation movements, but they know the the major points, let's say. Maybe they don't know the melody, but they know the chord changes, something like that. So they say, oh yes, we believe in freedom, we don't make our women cover, blah, blah, blah. And what's so bizarre about this to me is that, like, it just seems like if you're asking such people this question, you have not really internalized the idea that, like, 24 hours from now, they're going to be back at their regular day job, which is killing other people. Or potentially they're going to be getting killed. And it's like, I don't think I'm a particularly deep guy. I certainly don't have a lot of experience with violence. But I do feel like I'm perceptive enough to know that, like, if your day-to-day is killing people and worrying about getting killed, uh, you're probably not having, like, lofty... uh, thoughts about like what the future is for your country or like what you believe in i mean especially if um the conflict kind of spins out of control like for instance i think a lot of uh folks on the rebel side especially if they defected from the army in syria they really had made a gamble that like it seems like the west and to some extent israel are against assad they might come in here for us and like win this big And, you know, regardless of if the West ever tried that, if that was the West's goal ever, they were expecting sort of like a level of commitment that never emerged. And so they may have thought this would be over quick, but then they found themselves on the wrong side of like a really bloody and drawn out conflict. And I imagine that in such a scenario, like you're barely thinking about anything other than survival. And so I I kept asking myself, like, why is the West... Why are Americans and Canadians so confused about this? Like, how can they sit stress-faced in a room, you know, with people who are who are killing people and watching their compatriots die and be like, what are you going to do about the hijab, you know, if you take Damascus? And it's like, you know, I don't want to get melodramatic here, but it's like the, the thing I imagined. You know, there's a thing on Succession where uh, Jeremy Strong and the, the guy who plays the father are arguing and... The father is like, you know, life is a fight for a knife in the mud. And, like, I certainly don't believe that, but I think war is that. And I think it's very weird and bizarre. Like, like I think there are many circumstances in which, essentially, internationally, that's what's happening. Like, a fight over a knife in the mud. And the West wants to, in some sense, referee. Or, like, decide who's who's acting more viciously and that's sort of always uh that's sort of always a result of when you arrive on the scene you know who's gonna seem most insane to you i mean i'm not gonna argue that there's no difference between actors in war that no one ever behaves worse than another side but i do think that like i'll just say this like i think most sides in most wars always but certainly in recent history, commit things that would meet the international legal standard of, of atrocities. And that one of the things that happens is that a lot of Western institutions, they just have a particular interest in um, finding atrocities on one side. So like an example of this would be like, and it's really complicated. I, I'm not trying to draw like a lazy moral equivalence. Like, for instance, I think in Ukraine and Russia... It's pretty clear that both sides have showed a willingness to use uh, bombardment that that is not uh, targeted enough to really distinguish between civilian and military infrastructure. But the difference, like in moral terms, is that Russia has a lot more areas that it's bombarding, and at least at the beginning of the conflict, they were doing a lot more bombardment. So even if there's like moral parity and rules of engagement... I'm willing to accept that the Russians were probably killing more civilians because they were just doing way more bombardment with way more types of munitions. But, like, is that an important moral difference? I don't know. And, like, a lot of the supposed means that the U.S. takes to, like, you know, quote-unquote protect people, like, humane measures, like, a lot of them are fake. Like, when you're, you know, when you're actually involved in this stuff, like working on research contracts for DOD or whatever stuff I've done, and you sort of see how 
like the like the assault on Raqqa, I was following really closely when the U.S. was providing, I think, air and artillery support to mostly Kurdish forces who were taking the city. And, like, basically the difference between how the U.S. bombards a city and how other places do is, like, press releases. You know, they're blowing the shit out of everything, but they'll release a press release that's like, well, here's where we bombed first because we thought like civilians would be leaving to these parts of the city so we thought it would be safer to bomb here and like probably those communications documents do reflect some real thinking that ultimately might have saved some lives but like the bottom line is still they just blew the shit out of Raqqa and like I'm not even saying that's necessarily wrong like ISIS is a problem I'm just telling you that when the U.S. wanted to displace uh, ISIS from Raqqa, its willingness to uh, rack up, you know, collateral damage was very, very high. And if there is less collateral damage from U.S. Uh, military, you know, encounters than other groups, it has far more to do with the fact that our munitions are higher tech than any, like, moral difference. You know, we can hit the thing we want to hit more often than some other armies can do. But that's that's not really a moral difference unless you want to argue that, you know, technical competency uh, is like a form of moral superiority. I, I don't know. That could be an interesting argument. But all of this is just to say, like, I think it's weird how we think about war, how we talk about war. I think it's very fake. I think the idea that there is, like, really high value in the U.S., pretending uh, that it takes great considerations for human life when usually it doesn't and usually that's not its job is like weird I'm not necessarily against it because like I said you might save some lives at the margin doing that but it does have this other pernicious effect of just confusing people about what violent conflict is which is like the point is to kill people and if you you know a lot of the contracts I've worked on I've had the chance to work with veterans and they will sort of talk about this too, the frustration that, you know, in certain elements of training or what they're asked to do for a period, their impression is that, you know, their job is to kill people. And then someone might come along and be like, well, actually in this Afghan village, you're like police and local diplomats. And they're like, we don't really, you know, know how to do that. That's not really what we signed up for. And obviously that kind of thing changed over the course of, of our engagements in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. But in any event, the point of this was to say that, like, I think America or Americans, contemporary Americans, have this really weird relationship with war where they think it's like this high-minded philosophical thing you would engage in because you had, like, an ideological dream. And I think that the reason they feel this way is because of our understanding of the American Revolution. And it's like, if you think about wars in history, the American Revolution is really unique. And I'll contrast it here with the French Revolution, because, like, the French Revolution is a much more common dynamic where, like, the war was maybe in some sense initiated by high-minded intellectual people. But very quickly, it got so bloody and so violent that, like, the logic of sort of revenge and... Uh, you know, anyone who could install order being supported. Like, that came in pretty quick because the the French Revolution was, like, really fucked up and uh, the, like, waves of violence and terror associated it with really fucked up. We didn't really have that with the American Revolution. And so we have this fantasy, I guess I would say, that um, that wars of revolution can be like that. That, like, you have some very smart, some very brilliant, uh, independent-minded people who are like, we have to pursue some discreet violence to gain our independence. But then we'll, like, fairly quickly, going back to being in, like, a good relationship with the people we just went to war against, but we'll be able to install our ideas. So, like, this is the American framework for what a war is, particularly a war of independence. But, like... That's almost never what a war is. I think almost always it's more like what I was describing at the beginning of Syria where, like, 
people think a government is about to fall or some big change is about to happen, so they switch sides. But then if things aren't resolved quickly, it's like, well, you've already broadcasted to your enemy that you're willing to sell them out and watch them die uh, to sort of gain partial advantage. So, like, now you're in a really desperate struggle for life and death. And I think what's interesting is there actually is this type of war uh, available in American history. It's just not the Revolutionary War. Um, it's the, like, long-term campaigns of displacement uh, and extermination against Indians. And I think that it's very interesting that, like, I mean, maybe maybe other people won't share this experience, but it's like, the school I went to in high school, you know, is in New England, and it was pretty, like, proto-woke, like, huge Holocaust section in the curriculum, huge civil rights thing, but I, and certainly they did say that, like, the, uh, that the campaigns against the Native Americans were, like, unfair, and, you know, they said, like, bad things about Christopher Columbus and anything, but I think we had, like, full years spent on the American Revolution and the founding, and we certainly did not have nearly that much time uh, focused on campaigns against the Indians. But if you really think about it, and this is where I say my view is converging with the left, I think the campaign against the Indians is much more important. It's like if you think about the Revolutionary War, uh, 1776, like when the colonies break away, it's like the the geography they are actually gaining control of from the British is, I don't know, like 5% of the land mass of contemporary America. I mean, maybe it's more than that, but the point is it's a small minority of what the country is today. And certainly like the West and California, the Southwest, these are hugely important areas to American identity. Uh, but if you said like, I guess people do refer to this when they use the phrase like how the West was won. You know, they're they're sort of invoking uh, a bunch of efforts against Indian populations um, and sort of like the lawlessness and violence that was involved in successfully settling those areas. But I, I think there is something fundamentally broken uh, in Americans' understanding of history where like, they are able to think that, like, real, nihilistic, chaotic, destructive violence is not necessarily necessary at the foundation of a country. You can just have, like, a little spat with your parents, the British, and then they let you out of the house, and then you're good. And it, it wasn't, like, this terrible, violent thing. It was just, you know, your, your parents didn't want to let you go. Uh, some people had to die or whatever, but, like... Like I said, it was ultimately like a little spat. But again, it's like, I think it it would be more right if we understood that the war with the British was not the conflict that secured America. The war with the Indians was the conflict that secured America. And maybe before, um, you know, maybe if I was older, it would have been explained more this way. But why do I think this is important? Well, because there's so many aspects of American history... Um, that I think are muddled because this isn't understood in the correct way. Like, for instance, you know, I think, I don't even, I don't, I, and to be clear, I'm not saying there needs to be, like, a progressive reckoning with history. I don't care about any of that. And I look at, like, the 1619 Project and, like, reckonings with slavery, and, like, I don't really believe there's any value in that. I think what would be valuable is... I think for a long time, and I want to be I want to be careful here because uh, it's like, I'll put it this way: if you look at um, like progressives and conservatives on the Indian issue in American history, like with a very few exceptions, there was no one saying you should just let the Indians do their thing. Like the the like conservative trad view was like exterminate these people, they're savages. And the progressive view was they're savages, but because they're made in the image of God, they have the capacity uh, to be full Christian humans. So we should teach them English and the Bible. And of course, yes, they have to leave behind their Indian ways, but like they will become 
you know, some shadow, pale form of a, a respectable Christian or something. Like, these were the two poles of the argument. The, the right being like, get rid of them, there's nothing you can do with them, and the left being like, full assimilation. So that whole spectrum uh, of opinion is like genocidal towards actual Indian culture. You know, the progressive view today would be like, it's their land, they don't need to change. And I'm, I'm not trying to endorse this genocidal view, but what I am trying to say is, I think it's interesting to note that in that whole political spectrum, you wouldn't really have anyone who was questioning the right of the civilized to settle in the space of the savage. And the, again, these aren't terms I'm endorsing. I'm just, I'm trying to describe the view. Like, no one, even like the wokest woke person in 1840 uh, was like, had any doubt that uh, Christian European civilization was maybe just the same as Indian civilization and it didn't matter uh, who controlled, the, it didn't matter which civilization controlled the territories. I mean, they would not have even acknowledged Indian civilization as a civilization. Um, they would have said, you know, we're settling the West because to bring civilization. Um, and I think that's relevant because whatever you think of that, and if you have regret about that, that's fine. I can certainly understand that. I mean, I, to the extent I have any familiarity with Native American cultures, I certainly find things to admire there. And like, it's not a in, in some sense, we, we don't have to say, oh, we're glad that that happened. Like, it's not our decision to make. It's something that happened. But the, the, again, the point I'm trying to drive home is that, like, this is a thing that had to happen for America today to exist as it exists, in the territory it exists in. And I think something that makes me really uncomfortable and seems even exceptionally morally cowardly is just like not telling the story as if that's the case. I think some modern progressives maybe even think that like there was a path of being much nicer or more peaceful with the Indians that still results in, you know, European settlers controlling this entire territory from east to west. Maybe some people would be more honest and say, no, we shouldn't control it. You know, native populations should still control a lot of that land. And if that's how you feel, fair enough. But I, I think that if Americans think that a great violence was necessary for us to even exist as a country, the great violence they will invoke is slavery. But I actually think there's pretty good arguments uh, that, you know, a lot of stuff that happened in the original colonies could have happened with or without slavery. And independence from the British might have been inevitable anyway. But in terms of conquering the continent east to west there was going to be this confrontation between um you know european settlers and native populations and i think where i agree with the left is they will sort of say like the spirit of this country is not some uh john locke and rousseau equality under the law, liberal nation of, like, rules and procedural liberalism. It's a settler nation where, like, the American character was forged in environments in the West where there wasn't even law and everyone was, like, deputized. You know, and th this is... This, I think, tells you a lot about the American character and contains a lot of important points uh, about the American character, for better or worse. And it's... I think when you think of it this way, a lot of things click into place. Like, if you think of it, it's like, oh, America's this country of nerds that, like, they loved reading books and, like, they loved the Greeks and the Romans and they wanted to install this really fair system. And then you just, like, look around and look at history. You're like, huh, like, a lot of stuff doesn't match up. That seems like sort of a fantasy. But if you think about it as, like, these were, like, crazy European religious zealots who kept pushing west and like they were all armed and they all uh joined each other in like killing the natives i i think this story possesses more of the truth of the american character or at least it's an aspect of our our history and character that is discussed less or or maybe it's not even discussed less but it's less understood um 
what this means and you know and it's again i i brought this up with reference to like libya and syria is that i think that that would be good for americans to understand because it was a zero sum and in some sense non-ideological conflict i mean at the time they would have said we need to bring civilization we need to bring christianity uh, to these benighted peoples, we need to bring civilization to the to the west of the North American continent. But I think that, in fact, there's a sort of materialist way to look at it. That's like uh, we wanted to develop this land agriculturally and as population centers, and there are people already living there, and they didn't want to leave. So someone was going to win, and someone was going to lose, and given enough time and enough places, the settlers won and the Indians lost. And we can, you know, if you want to go to a res or something, you can still see the results of that outcome today. And so I think in some ways this is, it would be good for Americans to think about this more because that's a much truer reflection of what human-to-human conflict is than this weird, wonky way we tend to evaluate it, which is like, well, which side in this conflict has read the right philosophy books? Which... Which side is interested in a, you know, bicameral parliament structure? It's like, that's all, I think, uh, up its own ass and fake and, like, not relevant considerations. Um, but as Americans, we're, we're very obsessed with them. So, so why do I bring all this up? What is the point of all this nonsense? I think, and this might seem like I'm making a sharp right turn digression here, but I think these things are related so just bear with me the reason i brought up the whole spectrum of like both progressives and conservatives uh in the history of america would have thought that like european western civilization replacing indian civilization was correct they just disagreed about sort of how to do it or whether to like assimilate or genocide the point of bringing that up is simply that obviously that confidence of identity created a lot of violence but it's just interesting to conceive of a time where people were so comfortable with sort of their right to life and their will to live and grow that even if you said sort of like, oh, well, the, the expansion of, of your people, of your civilization, will require these other fully human people created by God to die and be erased from the face of the earth. And basically everyone at that time, for reasons looking back, we can't fully understand, said, yeah, that's fine. Um, and even while I sort of shrink from, uh, you know, I shrink from adopting that attitude myself, I can't as a modern. I can't feel confident. You know, if someone said, like, would you push a button and it means a million Chinese die so a million Americans can live? I mean, I don't have the stomach to push that button, and I don't have that kind of... Uh, inborn civilizational preference like that's just that's not how I think about anything that's not how I've been trained to think about anything and I don't know if that's right or wrong but it it strikes me that there's something pathological and unique about sort of our current position of, of unwillingness to take up space and unwillingness under almost any circumstances to like assert our right to live or exist or expand at the cost of others. I mean, some people would say this is totally backwards, that we're the most uh, rapacious, uh, expansionist, you know, uh, government or society in history. And certainly that's true in terms of, like, consumption and uh, sort of cultural imperialism. But the point is that that's not carried out by, like, millions of zealots in our population who get in a wagon uh, and go kill or oppress other people. It's sort of like the machine does that, while meanwhile none of us even believe in this or like this. And I I was thinking about this in reference to COVID. You know, this is, there's like a, um, there's a podcast I listen to sometimes called Doughboys. It's a food podcast. And I wanted to play a clip from it uh, of this guy, Nick Weiger, who's who's usually pretty funny, but he has some like political takes I don't like. And he has this COVID take that, that drives me crazy, which is, uh, he essentially says something, I mean, you'll hear it in the clip, but he essentially says something like, 
oh, you know, because of capitalism, like there was a global pandemic, but we still had to go to work because that's just how it is in this country. And you heard this attitude from a lot of people. And what it seemed to be implying was that like, actually during a global pandemic, either for psychological or physical health reasons, everything should uh, come to a halt. And I, I mean, maybe I'm stretching it a little bit here, but I, I really felt like this was emblematic of like a culture that is, it, the culture is in the psychological state of a manic depressive person. Because if you know a depressed person or you've ever been depressed, your strong instinct is to be like, I have a lot on my mind, you know, I'm worried about death, I'm worried about getting sick, I'm worried about uh, being left by someone I love. I don't have the strength to do anything. I need to just stop and, and ponder and stew. And if you have anyone smart around you, if you have a good therapist or just a good loved one, what they will tell you is that's the exact opposite of what you need to do. In fact, in this psychically challenging moment, you need to get up and perhaps be more active than usual because motion is the opposite of of depression and, and I think about this with UBI too but also during COVID that all these people were saying we're more stressed than usual you have to let us not do anything and it's like weird maybe this is just because I, I have had depression in my own life and, and seen it in other people it's like you think it's like you don't like your job you're barely engaging with society at all and all you want is like society to really give you an excuse to like fully check out like if we do that you will die i don't know if it'll be a drug overdose or you'll kill yourself but it's like the best things in your life are the requirement uh that like the state or society is making you occasionally participate in broader society and like you for some reason but it must be a self-destructive reason uh are saying like but I, but I think they know they're lying in a way. I think they're saying, you know, the, the lie is like, oh, give us luxury space communism. If we all have UBI, we could game in the morning and write our play at night. And it's like, this is not what you would do. At least it's what, not what 99 out of 100 people would do. It's not what I would do. You would do drugs and get fatter and get more depressed and die. And like, I, I think you could probably see the bizarre connection I'm making, but it's like, Take that contrast of like the people who had such will for life, uh, such a belief that they deserve to exist and propagate themselves, that they could get in a wagon and head into the unknown, ready to kill or convert what they found there, versus a person who has to go to the office once a week and is mad about it. Um, and maybe this seems glib or like a stupid comparison, but I, I really think it's not. I think there's there's something significant in the total inversion of that psychology. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are making jokes now. Matt Iglesias tweeted recently that um, he's like, man, people really don't seem worried that uh, the prospects for nuclear war are just getting likelier and likelier. And I, I mentioned to a friend or I tweeted something that suggested this, like, the reason other people aren't upset about it is because they want it to happen. You know, they don't have the stones to like point the gun at their own head and pull the trigger, but if someone was pointing it at them, they'd feel relieved. Um, and I really think this is true. I think that if people are arguing like, I shouldn't have to go to work, uh, society should pause whenever there's some biologically or psychologically challenging thing, we should be just paid to just live our lives in our homes. Like, this is the request of a dying person, spiritually, uh, and psychologically. Um, and I don't know what that means, but it does strike fear into me. And I just want to say, because I think so many psychological things are, you know, so much analysis can be projection or whatever, but like, I do think in this case, I am attentive to noticing this because it's, it's something I like actively fight against in myself, but I really like I do want to live and I do want America to get better and I want people to be engaged and you know having had experience with depression or whatever it's like you can recognize in others when their sort of like skin in the game is like so minimal and they just seem like they could uh, 
they could take or leave life. Uh, and this is sort of what I think of when I see like overdose numbers, when I see the amount of people just like dropping out, you know, they say there's all these jobs and people are just aren't joining the workforce. I think there is such a, um, such a profound like lack of will to be alive, to be engaged in the world. And again, I don't bring up American history and that moment of intense will to expand and settle as an example of like the way to be, because you know, I, I think there are better ways to do things, especially now in, in 2022 than maybe what happened then. But I do think the complete inversion of that psychology is a troubling development and a development we have to try and understand. And, you know, I mean, some people will tell you, like the Nick Weiger guy, the person I made the clip of, he would say that part of the reason he has no will to life and take up space is that he knows that his ancestors did these terrible things uh, and that in some ways people who are people who feel confident in the space they take up and in the right they have to live or rule or propagate or grow, that they always are, are guilty of that violence. And so maybe in a way he'd rather be a nothing, a guy staying at home, uh, you know, than be like an evil or a violent person. And I don't know, I, I mean, I don't agree with that. I, I understand the ethical concerns that could lead one to that conclusion, but I think that um, we have not succeeded in making ourselves morally clean through our passivity. We're just sort of like, we have this self-running, weird, hegemonic cultural empire that often engages in violence, and we just, we look away, both from our own history and from the violence uh, that currently holds up all the things we, we like to do, whether it's, you know, Uber Eats or video games or whatever. So... Yeah, is the I guess the the question I'm asking is is there a way to to engage that uh, that sense of entitlement to life and prosperity in ways other than violence, in ways other than uh, destroying other people, and how do we how do we activate that, and why are we so seemingly dramatically uh, bereft of that quality? And so, if you have thoughts on that, I'd I'd love to hear it.